Our first reading this morning comes from the uh, from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and I'm reading uh, from verses 13 to 18. So verse 13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is the word of the Lord. And so I'm going to be reading on from our passage before. So that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 11. So that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and starting at verse 1. Let's hear from God's word. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains in a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just in in fact you are doing. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning that we stand on every promise of your word. Our Father God, we pray that you would build us up in your wonderful word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, when I was in my first ministry position out in Wee War, New South Wales, I struck up a friendship with an elderly American bloke who reminded me a lot of the Marlboro Man, if you're old enough to remember him. Same clothes, same hat, and just like the Marlboro Man, he loved his cigarettes. 
But also, sadly, just like the Marlborough man, he also got lung cancer. And so I visited him the week he got the news. Popped over regularly as he struggled through chemotherapy. Uh, raced down to the hospital when he was rushed there in a critical condition. And after he breathed his last, I was there to pay my last respects. And while I stood there by his bed, another friend of his, who was also with me, said something, and I'll never forget it. He said, OK, let's leave, because Frank has left. His body is still here, but not him. No, the person we knew has now left the hospital, so let's go too. And so we did. But as this was the the very first person that I I walked through this struggle uh, with close up in the final stages, the next few days felt strange and surreal as I struggled with the sense of him being here one moment and completely gone the next. And friends, after the week our church has just had, Losing a dear brother in Brian, I know that feeling is amongst many of us here this morning. It's a strange, bewildering experience as we grapple and adjust to the reality that this person we all knew, spoke to week in and week out, is no longer with us. And if that's not hard enough, these moments also remind us that one day this sudden departure from the scene will also be true of us. The world's response to this, either hide the harshness of it all away or soften it with cliches and platitudes, you know, which may work for a little while until you get days like Thursday. And the cold, harsh reality of it all hits again once more. If only there was a word, a truth, that could somehow blow away the dark clouds that days like those bring. A word, a truth, that could overpower the darkness and replace it with genuine hope and light. Friends, I don't know exactly what precipitates Paul writing what he does in verse 13, but these words right here clearly show that that's Paul's intention, isn't it? To replace the darkness, blow away those horrible clouds with a word that truly does bring hope and light. Look again at how he begins. He writes... Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Now, friends, as nobody is perplexed about those who go to bed each night, clearly Paul is talking about those who close their eyes but cannot then be shaken awake. And make no mistake, that was the case for many who put their hand up to follow Christ back then. Because truth be told, although Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, death was still very much a reality for those who threw their lot in with him. In fact, if you did a survey back then, you would have found the average death rate higher in the Christian community than outside it. As the church suffered with all those normal human afflictions, plus 
crushing persecution that is only going to ramp up over the next few centuries. Ironically, following the defeater of death brought the reality of it a whole lot closer for those early followers of Christ. So not surprisingly, this created a great deal of confusion amongst those early church believers. And so, Paul sharpens his pen and speaks directly to it right here, doesn't he? We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Friends, as we read this, notice there are two things that Paul wants to make crystal clear as he begins. Firstly, ignorance about what happens next is no longer the case for the Christian believer. And because that's the case, a second big truth follows. Grief in losing a loved one, although still a reality, is not coupled with a sense of despair and hopelessness. Now, why is that? What are we Christians privy to that that Paul can write a verse like that? Well, friends, look closely at what he says next because everything, absolutely everything, hinges on this. Verse 14. We believe... That is, we hold to the truth that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, friends, see the simple but profound steps Paul is taking us through right here. Jesus died, but is now alive. Point two. Everyone who now dies trusting in Christ are also now alive and with him. And so point three, Jesus will bring these departed believers who are with him along with him when he returns. Now, friends, I'm under no illusions at all that these assurances given here by Paul sound to many out there as about as fanciful as the imaginations of a four-year-old. As such, when they are given by a fully grown man, they are often dismissed as complete madness. But friends, listen to how Paul responds when he is accused of exactly that by a high-ranking Roman official. You'll find this exchange in Acts chapter 26. Responding to an accusation that Paul's belief in the risen Jesus was completely crazy, Paul responds with this. According to the Lord's... uh, Sorry, Mr. Page, I don't want to miss this. He says to Festus, I am not insane. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And so this grown man plants his feet, looks at this Roman official in the eye 
and with a big crowd listening on says, I speak of the resurrection of the dead with full cognition and with all my faculties working perfectly. And you know, I'm in my right mind. You all know I'm in in my right mind. Because these things were not done in a corner, Paul says. In other words, this one called Jesus very publicly died. His limp, beaten, sword-thrusted body was then laid in a very well-known tomb. Then after three days, everybody also knows that that tomb was supernaturally disrupted and the body gone. And then the news started coming in. Jesus was up and about, seen at one point by over 500 people all at once, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My testimony is not the testimony of a madman because it happened, says Paul, and I know that you are familiar with these things. And so Paul simply refused to be, to be quiet about these things, no matter what, because these things tell us death has been overpowered. Not just by Christ, but by all who put their trust in him. Jesus' victory is a victory shared, assures Paul. He is alive. And everyone who has fallen asleep trusting in him are also just as alive. And so when we pay our last respects, as many did for our dear brother Brian on Thursday, although difficult, although painful, especially for those closest to him, the pain is not soul-destroying. For our grief directs us toward verse 14. And verse 14 ministers to us in our grief. When I went to Bible college back in Sydney, I attended a church in a nearby suburb. And it was one of those very old churches that was completely surrounded by graves. Now, many of us today might think the last thing you want to do if you want to enliven and grow your church is to to surround it with headstones. But in earlier days when death was not so hidden away, Being buried around a church wasn't sad or morbid for anyone who was walking towards that front door. Rather, it was a powerful testimony of the hope of new life. And friends, that's because this scene acted a little bit like a visual sermon for everybody who saw it. A visual sermon that those who believe in Jesus are not lost, but have been laid to rest and are now in that long sleep that Paul talks about in verse 13. They are asleep and they are awaiting a future day. And what will this future day entail? Well, let's read on and find out. Verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, writes Paul, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
Now, things, friends, things were fairly easy to follow, weren't they, up until this point? But now it gets a little bit fuzzy, doesn't it? I mean, what exactly is Paul putting his finger on here? What question is he addressing as Paul points this church forward to Jesus' return? Well, reading between the lines, it seems their concern goes a little bit like this. If our loved ones who have died have left their bodies behind, but we, perhaps, who are still alive when Jesus returns, well, how does all of that work? It's like they are asking, how can I be with, and how can I hug my loved ones if they are still without their bodies? And friends, let's see how Paul answers this concern as he continues. He writes, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will will be with the Lord forever. So be assured, writes Paul, there'll be no physical, spiritual separation, segregation in any way between those who have died and those who are still alive. In fact, Jesus' first priority is to reclothe our dear departed loved ones and then bring us all together, never to be separated again with him. So don't be worried. Don't be concerned where they are now or how you will be with them in the future. The risen one has it all in hand. So be encouraged and encourage others with these words, Paul writes, verse 18. And friends, what an encouragement these precious words are. Our loved ones are safe with Christ. The separation will one day be over, thanks to Christ. And so the tears, crying, mourning and pain will end. For when Jesus returns, the old order of things that we now live in is the thing that is going to die. And it will die and be finished for good. You know, it's interesting, as as well-meaning as secular grief counselling is, because it doesn't have any of this kind of biblical truth in its framework, the best it can really offer is to try and help people come to terms with and make peace with the past. You know, to, to remember and cherish and get to a point where you can enjoy the memories. But friends, in Christ, our loved ones are not contained in pictures. They're not contained in photographs. No, friends, they are alive, more alive than they ever were on earth. And every day, 
is one day closer to seeing and being with them again. But when will this be? Tomorrow, in a year, a thousand years? Well, friends, from what Paul writes next, it's clear we're not the first to ask this question. Chapter 5, verse 1, have a look. He goes on to say, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So in answer to their question, Paul says, Look, just as the arrival of a thief is not marked on anybody's calendar, nor is Jesus' return. And there's a good reason for that straight up, isn't there? If we knew that day, exactly when it's going to be, well, we would be completely obsessed with that day, wouldn't we? And so forget living for him each day within the rhythm of work and family and rest and play that God gave us. But rest assured, one day this rhythm, this good rhythm, will change, writes Paul. Jesus will arrive like a thief. Now, why a thief? Because, friends, when he comes, he's going to rob the earth of something. Us. We are going to be snatched away. Indeed, that is the actual word Paul uses a few verses back in 4.17. But that raises the question too, doesn't it? Why is it that Jesus needs to rob us from the earth and take us up into the clouds rather than being reunited with our loved ones right down here on terra firma, earth? After all, that's our ultimate hope, isn't it? Not floating around in the sky and in the clouds, but new heavens and new earth with brand new incorruptible bodies to inhabit it. Revelation 20 and 21. So why will Jesus reunite us all with him up in the air? Well, friends, because we are being saved from the judgment that will be going on down on the earth. Verse 3, have a look at it. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But those in Christ will. That's the picture here. So as one of his, we are to be prepared. We are to be ready for that day. So how do I do that? How do I get ready to meet Jesus when there's no set calendar date for that meet-up? Well, let's now continue because Paul now focuses in on this. Verse 4, have a look. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now friends, see Paul's point? The thief analogy is for the unbelieving world. Because in our eyes, when he breaks into this world, 
He's no thief to us. He's a liberator. We can't wait to be snatched away from the world's clutches. As such, we live in such a way that this thief, when he comes, will easily recognise us from the unbelieving crowd. And so see Paul's contrast here. We're awake, we're not asleep, we're sober, we're not drunk, we're living in the light, not sleeping in the darkness. Paul's point, our life is to contrast sharply with the non-believing world as we follow Christ and not the world. But that's hard, isn't it? When the darkness is all around us and feels like it's encroaching more and more. So how do we stop it from creeping in? How do we keep walking in the light? Verse 8, have a look. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so Paul writes, protect your heart from the darkness by putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Now what's the connection between faith and love? Well, faith keeps your love upward toward God and outward towards others rather than inward towards self. This is the example that Jesus gave as well, isn't it? He didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. An example Jesus now calls on us to follow. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Our friends talk about a contrast to the world's philosophy here. How's it done? Faith in Christ. And then showing the love Christ gives us as we trust in him. So keep the darkness away by putting on the breastplate of faith and love, writes Paul. But don't do all that hard work and leave your head exposed because it's what's going on up there that informs your heart to keep going day in and day out. So put on the hope of salvation as a helmet, writes Paul. That is, keep your mind's eye fixed and focused on that sure day to come. Knowing that it certainly will, thanks to verse 14, Jesus' death and resurrection. For his death and resurrection guarantees your resurrection. So keep your hope helmet on. This will keep your mind clear. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now friends, this life can be dark, difficult, heartbreaking and sometimes immensely painful. A truth that we have been reminded of just this past week. But this sad event connects us directly to another one. An event, a moment where death has been swallowed up in victory. 
And because there is simply no greater encouragement in this life than that, Paul repeats himself, doesn't he? Encourage one another in this, 4.18. Encourage and build one another up in this, 5.11. And with that we have our application, don't we? Be encouraged, be cheered, be built up by the precious, unchangeable, certain promises contained in these inspired words. But don't then contain them. Don't keep them to yourself. But encourage one another in them. Especially on weeks where a dear loved one in the fellowship departs. For God has given us an answer, sure and certain, about what's next and what's to come. And friends, what a glorious, wonderful answer that is for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, one thing we are certain of, and that is without Christ, without his forgiveness, without his redemption, without his reconciliation, one for us through the cross, we know that the end is bleak indeed. But thank you, Father, that that's not the case. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for these wonderful promises contained here about what his ministry means for us through faith. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that that ministers to us so deeply in grief and sadness and loss. We pray particularly this morning again for Claire and the Crawford family that those wonderful truths might be embedded clearly in their hearts and minds this day and in the days to come. And Father, for us too, who have lost dear loved ones, minister to us again with these truths. And remind us, Lord, of the true and certainty of them, thanks to a real death, a real resurrection, a real ascension, and a real coming again. And Father God, we thank you for them. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.